Good morning, church family. Josh here. It is so good to be meeting with you this morning. We are going to dig into the word, into the book of Galatians. So if you want to turn there, we've been on a three-year journey through the Bible, and we're talking through the early church. Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul. Here we are at Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. We're taking six weeks to talk through what it means to make progress as a church. We started with unity in the church in Corinth. If we're going to step forward, we need to step together. And then we talked about leadership from Paul's letter to Timothy. There comes a point where each of us needs to take a step for ourselves. We need to take ownership of our faith and practice. So in order to step forward, you need to step. And then Steve talked us through the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Unnecessary steps had been added to the gospel. You don't need to perfect the law. You don't need to be Jewish. You just need faith in Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't complicate it. Don't add unnecessary steps. Then last week, Steve covered the second missionary journey of Paul and asked the question, why? Why did he do it? Why did he endure all of the junk? Well, it was because of love. Making progress as a church is all about stepping in love. Steps of love are always towards people, particularly people who aren't necessarily like us. Steve kept pointing out the term brothers. The Jews and the Gentiles are now united as brothers in the love of Christ. Now today I want to challenge maybe one of the biggest roadblocks to making progress as a church, and that is comfort. Comfort. Progress is hard because it requires change. And you know what change is? Well, it's uncomfortable. Comfort always pulls us back. It's a natural instinct. It's part of our human nature in protecting ourselves. It's survival of the fittest, self-preservation. If it's uncomfortable, maybe that's a sign it's harmful. So we pull back, we go back, we look back. Here's what it looks like in conversation. Do you remember when? Remember the good old days? I mean, remember when phones had those coily cords connected to the wall and you couldn't carry them around your pockets? Simpler times. Remember when the paper route was your biggest responsibility? Remember when the neighborhood kids would get together for a game of ball after school? You remember back before COVID? If we could just go back to 2019, right? If if we could just get back to life before COVID, comfort always takes us back. But to make progress... We have to let go of comfort. We have to let go of control. We have to let go of the way things have always been. Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia because he heard news that the Judaizers were spreading a false message in the churches. It went something like this. Forget this new streamlined gospel that Paul told you. It's too simple. You need to go back to being circumcised. You need to go back to following the Mosaic law. You need to go back to embracing all of the old Jewish traditions and customs. If you really want to be saved, if you really want to be a child of Abraham, you need to go back and do it the right way, the old way, the tried and trusted old covenant way. And Paul is ticked. (laughs) He's really mad. And you can see it in the tone of this letter. His message is, you can't keep going back to the old ways because the old ways didn't work. You need to step forward into life in Christ. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Galatians, Paul tells them about the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. That the Jerusalem apostles agreed, we don't need to add anything to the message of the gospel. 
It's just faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus alone. That's it. And then he calls out the Apostle Peter for flip-flopping between eating with non-Jewish, uncircumcised believers and then avoiding them when the traditional zealous Jews were around. Depending on the crowd, he would change his behavior and go back to the old way of doing things. And Paul says this just can't be the case. Let me give you the first of three points. There is comfort in control. Let me tell you, this one resonates with me. Let let me ask you this. Who operates the climate control when your family is driving in the car? You can answer in the chat. Who sets the temperature, the fan speed, the air conditioning? Is it mom? Is it dad? Should it always be the driver? Should it be the person riding shotgun who is in charge of climate control? I came across this paper written by six Chinese students from a university in Beijing in connection with Harvard. They studied the effects of perceived climate control on people. Perceived control basically meaning that they had the buttons and the dials, they had the thermostat on the wall, but they weren't actually connected to anything, which is hilarious. The research showed that there was a direct physiological and psychological response to perceived control. The dial didn't change the temperature, but the subject, thinking that they were in control, it actually helped to comfort their mind and body. They regulated their comfort level more when they thought that they were in control, when they had perceived control. In short, research shows that there is comfort in control. But here's the problem. In our discussion on making progress today, control is a roadblock. Pastor Craig Rochelle, pastor of Life Church, he said this in his leadership podcast. You can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. Our desire to be in control can actually squash the forward movement we long to see. These Jews from Jerusalem traveled to Galatia and spread the poison of earning salvation through the law, through circumcision. Why? Because they wanted to maintain control. By this point, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he tells us that there were as many non-Jewish Christians as there were Jewish Christians. The Jews wanted to maintain the traditions, the covenants, the Mosaic law. They were losing control And that can be scary. Mind you, they were never in control of the church to begin with, just like we're not in control of the church today. Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1, Why did you let them bewitch you? Why did you let them trick you? Why did you let them control you? I mean, you saw the gospel with your own eyes. I presented it to you. Then look at verse 2. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul says, I've just got one question for you. Answer me this. Did you come to God by works or by faith? Was it by your good deeds, your knowledge, your obedience, or was it by your faith in Jesus? Was it by your faith in your own works or your faith in Jesus' finished work for you? Do you remember what that moment was like for you? If you've trusted Jesus, do you, do you remember when you realized for the first time that you could never earn your way to God? There wasn't enough you could do. It was outside of your control. You just couldn't do it. 
but instead you had to give up control and trust Jesus. Paul calls them back to that moment where their faith journey really started. And then look at verse 3. Paul says, are you so foolish? He's saying, are, are you that stupid? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul saying that? He's, he's really frustrated. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And that Spirit with a capital S. The Holy Spirit plays a major role in salvation. The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit calls us to repentance. And then the Spirit is the agent through which Christ's accomplished work is applied to us. Without the Spirit, we can't be redeemed. We can't be regenerated. It's God's work and only God's work. Now, if your relationship with God started by faith in Jesus through the Spirit, a gift from God, are you now able to make progress on that in your own strength? I mean, can your works really add anything to his works? Like, Jesus, thank you for accomplishing my salvation on the cross. I receive it by faith. Now that I'm a child of God, I'm going to work really hard in order to make you proud. I'm going to try really hard to earn your approval. That's a form of control, isn't it? Doing it in your own strength. How do you get into the family of God? Well, it's through Jesus, by his spirit. What did Jesus do for you? Well, he died an innocent death as a vicarious sacrifice, and then he rose again from the dead. Let me ask you this. Can you do better than that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Nothing you can do will ever add to the work that Jesus has already done for you. So why try to gain the approval of God, who's already approved of you because of the death of his son? Why not just respond in gratitude and have all of our effort flow from that place? Rather than trying to earn it, why don't we just express thanks for it? Look at verse 5, Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now I want you to think back to the series that we preached on um, miracles and meekness. Meekness and majesty. Do you remember that? What did Jesus often say to those whom he had healed? He said, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus was never impressed or made mention of people's obedience or knowledge or works. Jesus took note of people's faith. Jesus was amazed by the faith of the Roman centurion. Jesus was amazed at the lack of faith in his hometown in Nazareth. Jesus' miracles, the Spirit's power, were often in response to believing faith, but they were never in response to works of the law. The Galatians had fallen into this false belief of earning salvation through obedience to the law. It's a form of perceived control. The law is like the thermostat. It's not wired in. You're not actually accomplishing anything when you turn the dial, but because you think you're in control, it brings a sense of comfort. It's like praying at the end of the night by your bedside. God, I helped that old lady across the street. You must be so proud of me. And then God is saying, no, no, you've got it backwards. I'm proud of you because you're my child. And it's out of that identity that you should be motivated to help that old lady across the street. You're not earning or controlling my approval of you. I give it freely by grace through faith. Not of works that no one can boast. You remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul will explain in chapter 5 that the appropriate way to view works 
are as fruits of the Spirit. It flows from that faith relationship, not in earning, but in responding to the work of the Spirit. The law offered the illusion of control. Control is comforting, but it's a roadblock to fulfilling our mission as a church. Now let me give you point number two. The comfort cycle. This could be a sermon in and of itself. How many people remember photo albums? Do you remember photo albums? How many people remember scrapbooks? I, I'm just realizing that I'm raising my hand as if people can respond by raising their hand, but there's nobody in the room. So tell us in the comments, if you're a photo album or a scrapbook veteran and you're still creating books of snapshots and memories, throw it in the chat, let us know. But technology has kind of replaced a lot of that, hasn't it? You know, I think back to my childhood, I think my parents have a decent amount of photos from me as a kid, but think about the next generation. Think about my kids. How many photos are my kids going to have of their childhood? I mean, they're going to have a picture of every day of their lives. When I was a kid, it was the uncle with the Polaroid camera at the birthday party, right? You get one shot of the whole event and that's it. Now every family member at the party is a photographer, And we have the same event from seven different angles in snapshots and video. Every time I open Google Photos, it says, check out this day from seven years ago. And it shows me old pictures of what we were doing seven years ago. Why do we like to see photo albums, scrapbooks, slideshows of yesteryear? Well, it's because there's comfort in the familiar. There's nostalgic. There's tradition. In fact, In its strongest form, Freud calls this repetition compulsion. We find such comfort in repeating past events, we try to relive them, sometimes even reenact them. We dream about them, the good old days, right? If we could just go back. But that was a lengthy way of saying, we go back to what is familiar again and again and again. It's a cycle, it's repetitive. Maybe even if familiar is unhealthy, we still go back to it because it's comforting, it's reassuring, it's tradition, it's habit. Why do I keep repeating the same sin? Because it's now comforting, it's familiar. Why did the Hebrew people long to go back to the leeks and the melons of Egypt, even though they were slaves in Egypt? Well, it was familiar. For the Galatians, they were believing this lie that Going back to the old covenant would bring a desired outcome. And as we're going to find, that didn't work. Look at verse 10 of Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's a cycle, isn't it? I'm going to follow the law. And then I'm going to break the law. Let's try it again. I'm, I'm going to follow the law. And then, oops, I broke the law. I'm going to offer a sacrifice. Okay, I'm going to do better this time. But I guess that was kind of a lie, wasn't it? So I already broke it, so I have to sacrifice. All right, I'm going to do pretty good this time. And, and I'm doing quite well, but I guess pride has become an idol in my life before God. So I've broken the law, so I sacrifice. It's, it's a cycle. We keep going back to the law and breaking the law. Unless you follow every law, all things written in the books of the law, you're guilty. How many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? Just one, right? That's the problem. 
We're already cursed because we've already broken the law. Now, how ridiculous would it be to stand in a courtroom and say, yes, judge, I totally cheated on my taxes and I broke the law, but I'll try even harder this time to follow the law. Or how about you get pulled over and your response is, officer, I know I was speeding, but I promise to try and not do it anymore. (laughs) Does that make you not guilty? No, you're guilty. The law can't buy your innocence because you've already broken it. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It says that throughout the Bible, the righteous shall live by faith. So why do we go back to the law? If we know it doesn't work, why do we keep going back to it? You know, that's a good definition for insanity, by the way, repeating the same thing and expecting a different result. Maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time it'll be different. See, here's the thing about the law. The law never saved nobody. (laughs) Not, Not one person. It was never intended to save anyone, but to point out our sin and to point out God's holiness. Every time we go back to the law and try again, we fail. Why? Well, it's so that we can realize that we can't escape our sin unless God rescues us from it. There needs to be a way to break the cycle. There needs to be a different way. We can't keep going back to the same old ways because the old ways never worked. Those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. You can't go back to the law and expect something different. And I bet if you went back to the good old days, you'd end up right back where you are today. We can't relive the past and expect a different result. We need to break the cycle and praise God Jesus broke that cycle. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. He rescued us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus broke the cycle for us. He fulfilled the law. He embraced the curse of sin, which is death, And offered us a better way. Redemption, blessing, promise. All through faith. Not by the law. You don't have to be a descendant of Abraham. The law might be familiar. It might be traditional. Hundreds of years of pursuing God in the same way. But it was always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. He makes the law obsolete. We can't go back to the law and expect something better. Jesus is is better. Now, if we're going to progress as a church, we have to give up the old cycle of trying and failing according to the law. Repeating what is familiar may bring a sense of comfort, but it doesn't make progress. Here's my third point. Caught in comfort. Caught in comfort. You know what, you know what I keep hearing people say? I've, I've heard a number of people say this especially during the lockdown. Hugs. I could just use a hug. I miss hugs. Now, maybe you're not a touchy person. I'm not really a hugger. But maybe you can remember a time when you were embraced by a parent in a time of need. Or a friend notices you're upset and they just put their arm around you. They reassure you, supporting, encouraging, affirming. 
Why, do, why don't you find that hug emoji in the chat right now and just throw it in? Send a hug out there. We could all use a hug. I remember being a young kid at a track and field meet. I think it was like middle school. I was running the 800 meter, which is two laps around the soccer field. And I remember thinking, can I actually run that far? I don't think I had ever tried. <laughs> all those people watching, nerves. I never practiced once. I didn't know what I was doing. Long story short, I tripped. I fell in front of everyone. It was embarrassing. I got a little blood on my shoulder. I cried. I remember seeing my father and running to him and feeling a big, strong hug. You know what that's like. A hug is powerful. But here's the thing. Hugs don't last forever. As well, they shouldn't. And all the introverts like myself say, amen, right? But hugs should not last forever. If the hug is too long, it gets uncomfortable right? Pretty soon it's awkward. Have you ever tried to pull away from hugging a person and they're not done hugging and they still hold on? Worse yet, have you ever had an older sibling or a cousin or a friend give you a bear hug and you just can't get away? It's the worst. You're stuck. You're trapped. You can't breathe. You're getting squeezed. Here's the point. The law was strong guidelines for Israel a safety net of sorts, an outline to protect them and keep them as a pure nation as they establish themselves in the promised land. They're set apart. They're God's chosen people. But the embrace that once felt like safety and security has quickly become captivity, and now they're trapped like a bear hug by the law. Look at verse 21 of Galatians 3. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law served a purpose. It definitely did. The Ten Commandments God gave Moses on Mount Ararat, on the tablets of stone when he was in the cloud, they're important. They're a good guide. They're a great list of right and wrong. But they can't give you life. The laws for Israel as God made them his covenant people and they traveled through the wilderness to the promised land. They were necessary for Israel and then there are great principles and moral laws found in there for us now. The Pentateuch, the books of the law written by Moses, inspired by the Spirit, the first five books of the Bible, they serve as an incredible foundation for scripture, for creation, for beginning to understand Yahweh, the creator, the God of the universe. And we as humanity, designed, chosen, loved by him, created for a purpose, but guilty of sin, a great foundation. But apart from faith in Jesus, there is no life. If the law could give life, the New Testament would be irrelevant. Why would you need it? The prophets would be irrelevant. But the law cannot give life. So what did the law do? Look at verse 22. Paul says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Imprisoned, it means held together, held shut, held closed. The law reveals that we are captives under sin. We're trapped, we're stuck. Sin has us in a bear hug hold. And even though the law reveals that to us, it cannot free us from it. The negative aspect of the law is that it's like a magnifying glass for our sin. It just draws focus and attention to all the areas where we fail and fall short. 
but it does nothing to fix it. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law held the Jews like a parent or a guardian, like a school teacher, a schoolmaster, some versions say. We've all been around kids long enough to know that they need rules. They need parameters. They need an authority figure. Here's how far you can go. As infants, you don't let them out of your sight, right? As toddlers, they begin to entertain themselves. In elementary school, they can play on their own in their room in the yard. Middle school, they're off to friends' houses for sleepovers, youth group, high school. They get their license and they gone. That's how parenting parameters work. And the law was a guardian. It's a school teacher for the Jews. It's keeping them in line until the time of maturity. It was always meant to be a temporary measure. The law prepared the way for Jesus. The law couldn't hold on forever. It was pointing to Jesus. Even though Jesus had bought us salvation by faith, these Jews who were twisting the Galatians' understanding of salvation, they were still clinging to the law. The law had no power over them anymore, but they refused to let it go. Paul says, let go of the law. Stop trying to earn your salvation by works. Stop going back to the law expecting a different result. Step forward in faith into the new life that Jesus has claimed for you. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Now let me say this. If, if you've never made that decision, and the thought of God accepting you despite your shortcomings has gripped your heart today, why don't you fill out that connect card? Let's talk. Let's talk today. Let's talk right now. Fill it out and let's have the conversation about how God accepts you despite of your shortcomings. In closing, I want to talk to my church family for a moment. Let's stop talking about going back to normal, about getting back to the way things were. And let's start talking about moving forward, moving into the future. See, I believe God is calling Faith Baptist Church to great things ahead. The best days are truly ahead. If we believe the gospel, we believe that. Not back to the way that things were. Let's not let comfort hold us back from making progress in the mission that God has called us to. In order to make progress, we need to leave comfort behind. Salvation is not through works of the law, but salvation is by grace through faith. In the finished work of Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit and orchestrated by God the Father, salvation is only through faith. Praise God for that today. Would you pray with me as we close this morning? Father God, I want to thank you for who you are. I thank you for those churches in Galatia and for this letter from Paul. God, I pray that you would encourage us as you encourage them to be people of faith, not people of works of the law, trying to earn our salvation, trying to earn your approval, earn your acceptance. We know that that can never happen. So help us stop going back to what we know doesn't work and help us to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. Move forward in the new identity that we have as your sons and daughters, citizens of heaven, 
brothers and sisters of Christ, redeemed, bought by his blood. God, we thank you for who you are to us today, for your love for us. God, I pray that you would help us to move forward as a church. Help us not to long for simpler times or the glory days or the way life used to be, but help us to look to the future, to the people who need to see and hear the gospel in us. Father, I pray that you would be people who are future-focused. Help us to be people who are looking to the future. Disciples making disciples. Embracing truth, living in community, and engaging in the mission that you have sent us on. God, we thank you for this day. We pray for our church family and our community alike today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.